Welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen. And today we're going to talk about the new Japan. Think about it. A few years ago, people were saying that Japan was a country slowly fading from the world stage, both politically and economically. And once again, the punditry from elite media is wrong, and Japan is back and in unexpected ways. Mooney, and recognizing that successful resurgence, U.S. President Donald Trump was there recently on a state visit. We're going to analyze and talk about this comeback through the lens of two parallel realities, the retreat of the United States from the geopolitical throne, and then the growth of China as an economic and political Asian heavyweight. Amidst all of that chaos, one of our previous guests, Ian Bremmer, coined the term the failure of globalism. But I think really that Japan has been immune to the roiling seas of globalism's failures. Actually, I, I think Japan is a little bit like globalism's shining star. So the question that we're going to ask is, can that last? And to help us navigate that stickiness, whether Japan is actually going to still be the globalism's shining star and look at Japan's renaissance, we're going to be joined by Matthew Goodman, who's a senior vice president and senior advisor for Asian economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So, Peter, for the last century, if you look at Japan, the story is one of a geopolitical roller coaster and a dominant power in Asia that it was for most of the first half of the 20th century, the post-World War II defeat devastated the country. And then it rose again like a phoenix to become an economic powerhouse in the second half of the last century. So lectures were created at the Harvard Business School, textbooks were written to preach the wonders of Japanese industrial policy. Yet entering the 21st century, the country found itself deep in a political and economic malaise, basically suffocated by a stagnant economy, a unique deflationary spiral, declining demography, political systems and perpetual chaos and a rising China, as you mentioned, ready to displace it from the leadership that the land of the rising sun had occupied for a while in Asia. Okay, but what is clear, even though it's a roller coaster, what's clear here is that you can't write Japan off because the country is now embarking or in the midst of a surprising comeback. I mean, economists love to debate Japan's economic policies, but the success of Abenomics, named after Prime Minister Abe Shinzo. And I want to make a point that we're saying this name correctly in the order that Japan's foreign ministry recently asked Westerners to start getting it right. It's undeniable his success. Abenomics is built on a troika of fiscal expansion, of monetary easing and increasing demand, along with increasing competition, labor reforms, and expanding trade partnerships. As I said, opinions are really divided over the sustainability of this formula, but the truth is that the country appears to have overcome nearly two decades of economic stagnation. That's something to, I mean, you got to clap for that. Absolutely. And Abe, he's having a blast. He's the longest serving Japanese prime minister. He's been in power since 2012, and he and his cabinet have over 50% approval. Everybody would love that at that point in his tenure. This is an amazing number as you look around the world, Peter, at the dismal polling numbers of other leaders. And then, you know, to add to his uh, good fortune, the surprise abdication last month of Emperor Akihito after 30 years in power on behalf of his son, Prince Naruhito, is the first in two centuries. We has Donald Trump's recent visit that have given Abe a popularity bump and raised the stakes and visibility of Japan as a rare success story and a potential global model. Look, Muni, you, you mentioned these comparative polling numbers, and I, I would say, yes, there's something special about the good news out of Japan in this very turbulent world. The country seems to be sort of this example of the triumph of moderation, multilateralism, liberal democracy. 
it it also you, you got to recognize that it has a shrinking population and almost zero immigration so there's no real xenophobia and very few radical political groups which make it sort of this bastion of calmness it is an exception around the world peter and the economy as we mentioned is back after 20 years of economic stagnation and globalization works for japan it's historically a global multilateral champion infrastructure in japan is solid manufacturing is growing technological advances in cybersecurity and artificial intelligence are creating new jobs gone is the pervading sense of impending economic doom that was clouding japan in the in the recent past and now japan is navigating a trade deficit that's true in part due to the slowdown in China but it this kind of vacuum right now it has become a leading influence in the TPP the result of US checking out and the TPP the Trans-Pacific Partnership has given Japan the potential to increase imports by carving out a leadership role among a new set of trading partners without China Okay so I I do have we we uh, Mooney and I through lots and I got the role of being the the I got to be a, a momentary downer which is that yes the it's great that the economy is working again but look one could also argue that Japan is continues to be weak militarily way too dependent on the United States and China vulnerable to North Korea and shrinking as a global force you know indeed I think you know one thing that sort of really stood out for me Muni is that Trump's visit reminded us all about Japan's vulnerabilities Trump refused to say anything about defending Japan against North Korean aggression he again condemned the TPP something that the Japanese are so proud of and repeatedly said that the US was not bound by any of these agreements Trump may have had you know visits filled with great protocol in Japan but to me Trump's visit was also a big reminder of Japan's weaknesses and so among all of this great stuff that we're talking about I feel that one's got to be a little bit like I got to drag everybody down to reality here. I believe it's true that it is has its vulnerabilities, but I do think that Japan is a solid solid good story in a world's avalanche of bad news. It's a reminder of how globalism, smart economics and a liberal order based on multilateral relationships can actually work and there are very few other cases of this in the world. And then on Trump's visit one thing is clear Abe is clever and his move of easing restrictions to American beef prior to the sit down started the meetings on a positive tone and possibly managed to kind of hold back US tariffs on Japanese autos. So I would say this Peter the jury's out on whether the real Japan comeback will hold for the long term or whether its declining population means shrinking demand and shrinking production but those who bet against Japan you haven't gone that far have paid dearly compared to the rest of the world because the future does look pretty good so let's bring in our guest for some analysis and a bit of fortune telling matthew goodman holds the simon chair in political economy at csis he explores issues in international economic policy with a focus on the asia pacific region before joining csis in early 2012 goodman served as the director for international economics and the national security council staff helping the president prepare for the G20 and G8 summits he was also white house coordinator for the asia pacific economic cooperation summit and the east asia summit matthew goodman welcome to altamar delighted to be here let's start with president trump's recent visit to japan let me summarize my view of it great protocol 
mediocre substance. Am I wrong? No, I think you've just about nailed it. Um, it was optically about everything uh, you could have wanted on both sides, um, considering some of the other uh, visits the president's made to um, visit with allies. This was a pretty good one. Uh, you know, you had the golfing round with the prime minister. You had uh, the sumo championship where the president handed over this big new award. You had a, a banquet at which nothing untoward happened. So I think optically it was a very good visit for both sides. There was some discord on the substance. There was, um, I mean, first of all, there wasn't a lot of news, but to the extent there was, it was focused on some differences of perspective on particularly North Korea and on trade. And it seems to me that sort of the TPP again became this larger issue between the United States and Japan that was a real source of discord and disagreement. Well, yes. When President Trump on his third day in office decided to pull us out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it really rocked the relationship. And, and certainly in Tokyo, there was a great consternation and anxiety about this because the U.S. had really led this effort and Japan had joined because the U.S. was in there. And uh, the president basically, when he was in Tokyo recently, reiterated that he wasn't interested in going back to TPP and that he wasn't going to be bound by anything that had been agreed there, despite the fact that Japan had moved the agreement forward with the other 10 members of the group. What opportunities were lost in this visit? Well, I think what was good was there was an, an affirmation of the importance of the alliance. So that was, that was generally good. I think they could have done more to send a position of common agreement on trade and a desire to really get uh, these trade issues behind them so that they could then focus on the really important issues. And to be honest, the biggest and most important issue for both the United States and Japan is managing the rise of China. And I think there's a compelling interest for the two sides to be working very closely on the, on the whole range of issues that that involves. And then, you know, other issues like North Korea and um, uh, maritime uh, rules and um, issues of terrorism. There are a bunch of other issues on the agenda that uh, were not really um, advanced. So, Matthew, we've been feeling pretty upbeat about Japan on this show so far. We've mentioned a new emperor, a growing economy, the chance to lead on TPP, and not many dark clouds on the horizon. With the retreating U.S., is this the time for Japan to become a new leader of the democratic liberal order, or are we being too optimistic? I got to say, you know, I think I, like a lot of other people who have been watching Japan for a long time, have been really surprised by how Japan has been uh, ready, willing, and able to step up and fill at least some of the void left by the U.S. pulling back from the Indo-Pacific region. You know, it's it's not in Japan's character to be in this position, to, to lead on these issues like trade, like um, security issues and so forth. But under Prime Minister Abe, they have really made an unusual effort to try to continue to promote regional integration in Asia, to lead particularly on trade. And I think, um, I think this, is, um, this is something for which they deserve credit. Whether this will outlive Prime Minister Abe, a lot of this is personal to him and his style of governance. But I think there is a new opportunity for Japan to play this role as a, as a leader in the region. As far as the challenges, what are the, the main kind of hurdles that you think Abe faces on the economic front? And um, are the new growth numbers encouraging or are there structural challenges and risks involved? Well, Japan's been caught in this sort of funk for two or three decades now after its tremendous growth in you know, the previous decades. You know, some of that is really pretty deeply structural. Japan has a huge demographic problem. It, it's got the fastest aging population in, in the world. Actually, a couple of interesting numbers. 
of all the babies, Japanese babies alive today, more than half of them will live to over the age of 100. That's one uh, amazing number. The second one is that Japan's population is dropping by about 400,000 people per year. And so this is a catastrophic situation for Japan. And against that backdrop, if they can grow 2.1% or whatever it was in the first quarter of this year, that's pretty good. Is Abenomics still working then under that circumstance? So Abenomics, this plan to bring, you know, the three arrows to bear uh, to get Japanese growth going, that is fiscal policy, monetary stimulus, and structural reform, uh, has been, I think, widely applauded as the right three issues to focus on. They've done as much as they can, I think, on monetary. It's very hard to get more out of that. Fiscal, they can always do more. And there's an, a pending uh, fiscal retraction coming when they raise the consumption tax this fall. That's something that possibly they're discussing whether to avoid doing that. Um, and then on the structural side, you know, they've done some useful things. Uh, they've got a lot more work to be done, particularly in the labor market reform area. How has Abe managed to remain in power for so long after a steady stream of, of predecessors that didn't last very long? Well, he was one of those predecessors. He only lasted one year in his previous iteration as a prime minister in 2006, 2007. And that was largely because he wasn't tapping into what Japanese people were worried about. Number one was the future. And number two was economics and interrelated the interrelationship between the two. So when he came back in 2012, late 2012, having learned a lot in the wilderness between his previous time as prime minister and the current term, he came back and first of all, he said, Japan is back. He, he had a very optimistic sort of forward looking positive message. And secondly, he, he promoted Abenomics and economic reform as the really central organizing principle of his administration, certainly early on, rather than being distracted by things like constitutional reform and other things that he was uh, personally interested in. And I think that has helped explain in addition to some other structural factors, like there's no opposition uh, to speak of within his party or across the aisle. So, you know, he's done remarkably well. I want to ask you a bunch of foreign policy questions. But before we do that, I, I want to go back to this, what you called catastrophic demographic problem that Japan has. Well, how does the Japan resolve this with its also very well-known resistance to any immigration yeah, I mean, look, there are only really three or four things you can do to address this issue. One is to get existing Japanese people to work longer. Uh, that is, you know, into their what is now their retirement years. Current, a lot of business people retire at the age of 60. The official retirement age is 65. I mean, that's ridiculously young in a country where, again, half the babies are going to live to the age of 100. So they need to push that number back and get people into the workforce. They're starting to make some progress in that regard. Second, they need to get the 50% of the population who have been underutilized in Japan, that is women, into the workforce. Uh, that's again happening. You have a higher labor participation rate for women now in Japan than in the United States. But a lot of the jobs are not high paid. They're not full time. They're not with benefits. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that that could be improved, ways that could be improved. And then the third thing you can do is to bring in immigra immigration, to open the doors to more immigrants. Again, Japan has done some of that. I mean, to be honest, when I lived there 30 years ago, I would never have imagined this kind of immigration that you see when you walk into a restaurant now. There's often a foreigner who's serving you, that, which is unheard of even a, a decade ago. 
So they're doing that, but they need to do a lot more. Again, they're losing about 400,000 Japanese a year. So if they bring in 70, 80,000, which is what they're talking about, that's not going to fill the gap. So let's turn to foreign policy. You uh, you so diplomatically and elegantly said, called the a problem with China, sort of how do we manage, how does Japan manage China's rise? But more directly, I mean, it really is a conundrum. On the one hand, China is a buyer of huge amounts of Japanese products. On the other hand, there is really a growing rivalry to be the Asian powerhouse. How does managing China work in Japan? Well, I think you've you've captured it right. The, the dilemma for Japan, I mean, they're sitting next to this huge country that has been a traditional rival, but also one that is growing fast, um, although not as fast as it used to be growing. And it is, um, you know, it is a huge market opportunity. You got 1.4 billion people who Japan could sell, you know, Toyotas to and services to and lots of other things. And they invest, also Japanese companies invest in China. It's a very important part of their global supply chain management. So economically, very interdependent. By the way, one other thing, a lot of Chinese tourists coming to Japan. That's a right. big source of revenue for Japan. So there's economic interdependence, but there's this political and security tension, which goes back, I mean, not just centuries, millennia between the two countries, and is particularly pointed today because you know both countries now are uh, have large economies, have large uh, military forces, and uh, you know have big differences, both interests and values uh, that that they have to somehow reconcile. And is there a risk of increased tension, or do both countries want to manage this in a way that is uh, will reduce tensions? Yes, I see you smiling. Yes. I want to tell I want to tell our audience that our guest is smiling. The answer is yes, both of those things. There's a risk of increased tension. Um, I think you're going to see inevitably tensions over you know maritime territorial differences, over economic issues if China, uh, as it's done in the past, uses coercion against uh, Japanese interests in, in China, if it uses uh, the, the, the nationalism card against Japan, which is a, a popular thing China's done for many decades since World War II. On the other hand, uh, yeah, they, they want to manage the relationship. Certainly, Prime Minister Abe has sort of leaned into China and tried to uh, find ways to work together. They're, they're trying to set up exchanges of visits. In fact, Xi Jinping, the president of China, will be in Japan later in June for the G20 uh, summit. And uh, there's supposed to be a reciprocal trip by Abe to China. So they're trying to get closer. But, you know, there's some pretty fundamental differences. So it's going to be hard. And I'd say the risk of tension is always there. So let's move to North Korea. When North Korea launches one of its infamous missiles, it usually happens over Japanese waters, but sometimes even over Japanese land. And now we have President Trump, who seems to be, well, I I don't want to be flip, who seems to be sort of really interested in a deal with North Korea in ways that one wouldn't have expected. Where does that leave the Japanese? Yeah, the Japanese are pretty worried about this. I mean, the good news is that they have gotten one thing they want from Donald Trump, which is the the Japanese have, which is a public and more than once a statement of, of sympathy and concern about the Japanese citizens that were abducted from the streets of Japan uh, back in the 1970s and are still unaccounted for. This is a real political hotspot for uh, Japanese, any Japanese prime minister. If you listen to the press conference between President Trump and Prime Minister Abe, Abe's discussion about North Korea was largely focused on the abductee question. But that was also 
because of the other side of the story, which is Japan has been concerned that President Trump, as you say, is so eager to reach some kind of deal and to legitimize this uh, leader, Kim Jong-un, that he's not, he's lost focus or isn't interested in the thing that really concerns Japan, which is these short-range missiles. These are missiles that could reach Japan's land and could be nuclear armed. Uh, in, in fact, they can't reach U.S. territory. So, you know, some Japanese think Trump's less interested in that, even though, you know, under our mutual, under our alliance, uh, we're required to defend Japan if it's attacked. So um, he ought to be speaking more forcefully about the concern about North Korea's short range missile tests, as well as its uh, longer range capability and its basic nuclear program. Let me move to Russia, which is another fascinating story, and I guess almost a success story for Prime Minister Abe, because here again, uh, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, seems to be actually weighing the return of the Kuril Islands to Japan. I don't know how serious it is, but there there does seem to be some, some rapprochement here. Yeah, I'm not sure how much I would bank on uh, Vladimir Putin's word on this question. But uh, look, Japan and and Russia are still technically at war. They never signed a peace treaty after World War II. Russia, at the very end of the war, I mean, literally between the time the two bombs were dropped, um, nuclear bombs were dropped in Japan, Russia moved into these four islands uh, in Japan. They're called the Kure Isles, but the Japanese call them the Northern Territories. Uh, You know, there has been this uh, dance around whether the two sides might reach some kind of accord for return of some or all of the islands. I'm not particularly optimistic that's going to happen anytime soon. For one thing, the Japanese want that to happen first before they move forward with any deeper economic or strategic relationship with Russia. And Russia kind of wants the reverse, which is to get the economic incentives and, you know, have Japan buy and develop more of their energy before they resolve these territorial issues. So I I think it is an area where uh, Japan is trying, and Prime Minister Abe specifically, is trying to create a little space in the relationship with the United States to develop a somewhat better relationship with Russia. But I think there are going to be limits to that in practice. So Matthew, in your opinion, is Japan back? Is it set up to be a global power again without size influence in Asia and the rest of the world? Or do you expect some more of a modest leadership role? Well, I think Japan definitely is back in the sense that it has an economic position that is stable and for now growing fairly well. Uh, if you've been to Tokyo recently, it's it just looks spectacular. It's really um, a, a, such a, uh, an advanced and sophisticated place. Um, I think they're feeling good about all of that. They've got the Olympics in 2020. And by the way, a couple of other big events like the Rugby World Cup later this year uh, that they're hosting. So they're feeling confident in that way. They've got you know pretty good leadership under Prime Minister Abe. And as I say, he's done some things like getting TPP moved forward despite the U.S. withdrawal. So yeah, there, there, there are reasons to believe Japan's going to play a more important role in Asia-Pacific affairs. But, you know, Japan is, you know, historically reluctant to step out too far in front. There's a lot of historical baggage they have to overcome in the region. They have limits to their ability to project their force, although they have quite a substantial self-defense force, as it's euphemistically called. But they've got constraints on on the ability to project that. So I think there are going to be limits uh, to to Japan's role. But you know, I think certainly this is the most confident and assertive Japan I've seen in my 30 plus years of watching the country. 
Can I just add, Mooney's question was specific to Asia, but what about Japan's projection to non-Asia? For example, it certainly seems to me that Japan has completely abdicated in Africa and in Latin America to what is an incredibly uh, aggressive or proactive policy by the Chinese. I think abdicates probably a little strong. It's uh, they, I, I did that on purpose. One of the other one of the other events this year that Japan has been hosting regularly is the so-called TCAD event, the Tokyo Conference on Africa, and they've tried to invest in that. Africa's far away from Japan, and there is um, it's been harder to get the same kind of traction. But they have tried in Latin America. They've got some historical ties. They've been certainly interested in resource development uh, there. But you're right. China's been making inroads in both of those continents, and it's been hard for Japan to uh, to compete. But I would say, since your point is more broadly beyond Asia, I think Japan has done some things globally that are important. It's hosting the G20 summit, as I mentioned, later this month. And at that summit, it's going to highlight a couple of big global issues. Global health is one thing it's taken a real lead on and trying to advance creative um, solutions in global health, which applies to, importantly, in Africa. And then on data governance. So Prime Minister Abe in January at Davos uh, talked about the importance of establishing a system of global governance for uh, controlling and allowing free flow of data. He had this term free flow, data free flow with trust, which he wants to try to uh, move forward at his G20 summit. So they're trying to play a more progressive and, and constructive role globally. But, you know, it's it's space that is beyond their traditional comfort zone. So it is uh, it is challenging. So I have an abdication question. This one, a formal abdication question. There was a surprise handover in power, and there's a new emperor in Japan. How important or significant is this transfer? Well, the emperor is an interesting figure. I mean, I think most Japanese don't really, frankly, pay that much attention to the emperor, the imperial family. I would say significantly less than in even Britain, where, you know, there's still this sort of public ceremonial role that is quite important. But that said, there is a part of Japanese society that really feels it's important that the emperor uh, remain and that the traditions of, of that office remain. And I think for most Japanese, having a person who represents the country as a whole is still important. I think the, the new emperor is a little bit even more than his father, who was different from his father, um, more a modern man and a more liberal-oriented man. And I think you'll see some changes. By the way, his wife, the empress, somebody who I know from a deep uh, historical past, was a former diplomat, speaks fluent English in about three other languages. And I think she's going to step out a little bit more. But all that said, it's a very conservative institution, and I wouldn't expect nearly the kind of um, public profile that you see, say, in the UK monarchy. Let me ask you about another young Japanese, since we're talking about new generations. I've read a lot about uh, the son of a former prime minister, Koizumi, as a 38-year-old up-and-coming politician. Is this, uh, is this somebody that we should all be watching? Absolutely. By the way, he happens to have been an intern at CSIS uh, about a decade ago. And, um, and he's a terrific young man, very smart, very charismatic. He just spoke um, at a forum we had about a month ago. And uh, again, just affirmed how much of a star he is. So I, I think, you know, you never know. Of course, a lot of things can happen. But I think uh, there, there's a reasonable chance that he is going to be a prime minister in the future. 
maybe in the not too distant future. And uh, he's definitely worth watching. Matt Goodman, thank you for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. So happy to be here. So, Peter, I thought I was being overly optimistic before this interview, and now I'm overly optimistic again. It seems like the stars are aligned for Japan. It's operating basically in a global vacuum of leadership and of the original liberal order. And it's got its ducks in a row in terms of economics and politics, and it also doesn't have the challenges of excessive immigration. It could go both ways because it does need a young population to hold up the economy. What do you think? You know, it's it's amazing to me the juxtaposition between the stories and the discussion about Japan versus the stories and the discussion about other leading Western nations. I mean, you know, when you talk about Europe or the United States, you are talking about you know, in general, sort of some type of populism. You're talking about populations that are incredibly dissatisfied. You're talking about increasing amounts of polarization. And when you talk about Japan, you you talk about babies that are born today that are going to live to be 100. You talk about people that are relatively content that there are changes being made with women being introduced into the labor. Not enough, obviously, but there are changes happening in Japan so it's a it's the the story just seems to be completely different. I, I would only, you know, leave with one question, which is is this something that's gonna extend beyond Prime Minister Abe? Is this so personalized to him as a man who goes against the Japanese grain, takes leadership, wants a global role, etc.? I just I don't know. I don't think anybody knows, but this is I think the big critical question. You are sounding a little more optimistic. So thank you for that. And thank you all for joining us in Altamar. See you next time.